This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. With me, Pastor Eric Flickinger. Eric, thanks for joining me today. Good to be here, John. On Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. At It Is Written, we receive a slew of questions every week from people looking for answers to some of life's most important questions. So let's start at the beginning, Eric. What's our first question today? First question that we have comes from Marvin. And Marvin has a question about 1 Peter 3 and verse number 19. Marvin's question is this. What is the understanding of 1 Peter 3, 19? Does it have something to do with Noah? Let's find out. Okay, take your Bible. We're gonna open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at this verse, verse 19. I'll begin in reading verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Take it from there. In verse number 19, he begins by saying, by whom? So the question we naturally have to ask is, who's he referring to here? And the answer is the last person that was referred to in the verse before, and that is the Spirit. So speaking of the Spirit in verse 19, it says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So we have some markers here, some, some pointers. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who they? To, to individuals who have uh, sinful tendencies, who are choosing the wrong path. They were in the prison house of sin. How do you get from here to there? Well, you've got the Holy Spirit who is reaching them. They are uh, in bondage. And so if Christ is reaching to these individuals who are in bondage to sin through the Holy Spirit, he's trying to woo them, trying to draw them, to help them to make those decisions that they so desperately need to make. It mentions here some people in particular, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Noah. So specifically, we can take it that this verse refers to the time when Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, spoke to those people lost in the time of Noah points it out, talks about the eight who were saved, the many who were lost. Right. So sometimes people will take this verse and they'll try to make it uh, sound like Christ went down into hell or something and preached to individuals who were down there uh, after he had been crucified, before he resurrected, uh, things like that. But if you look at the context, it's all talking about the days of Noah and the Holy Spirit reaching out to people during that time. And that's an important point. If you have a Bible question, you try to wrestle with it, have a look at that passage in particular, go up a few verses, Go down a few verses, read the verse or the passage in the context in which God had it placed into the Bible. And often, simply looking at the context itself will give you the opportunity to really find the answer to the question that you're asking. God will lead you there. Don't forget context. It has been said context is king. I think that's right. Okay, next question. This question from Alpha. Okay, a health-related question. What are the negative effects of milk, sugar, eggs, and any other animal products to our bodies? Okay, well, let's look at this big picture wise. The Bible tells us our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where God wants to dwell. 
in you. So it's important we take that seriously. Absolutely. And there are things that we can do that will help our health, and there are things that are going to be detrimental to our health. And if our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we want to take the best care of our bodies possible. Now, when you start talking about uh, health questions, unless the Bible clearly speaks about something, it becomes a matter of, well, my expert can beat up your expert, if you know what I mean. Now, there are some who will say that eggs contribute to elevated cholesterol levels. And uh, I, I think there's some good science that backs that up. There's, uh, if you look at sugar, oh my goodness, i tell you something I saw that was very sobering. It was a graph that plotted the increase in cancer over time. And on that graph was the increase in sugar consumption over the same time. And as I recall it, the lines basically moved together. I didn't say that there's causation, but I can certainly see a correlation one between the other. So my point is there are any number of things that we consume daily, often without even giving it a whole lot of thought, that just aren't good for your body. And while the Bible does not say thou shalt not eat sugar, and there's sugar naturally in some of the very best things that you can eat, um, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that moderating a sugar intake is just a good idea. So the principle is this, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to honor him with your body. The Bible says that. It says in 1 Corinthians, whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So clearly there's a way that you can eat and drink that is not to the glory of God. As a believer in Jesus, as a follower of God, you wanna really treat this with the seriousness that the Bible treats it with. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not gonna to get too terribly specific about this. I tell you what though, if you go to itiswritten.com slash health, itiswritten.com slash health. You will find there a raft of resources and uh, interviews and programs that we've done dealing with health questions and you'll be blessed. Thanks, Alpha, for your question. Eric, next question. We have another question here. This one comes from Evelini. When we get to heaven, will we recognize our family and friends as usual as we do here on earth? Tell you what, it would be a funny old business if we get to heaven and we don't recognize anybody. I guess that way you'd have the chance to meet all your family and friends all over again. Tell you something, I have a dear friend and she suffers from, I guess that's the right way to put it, something called prosopagnosia. Which is? Face blindness. She'll meet a person, see a person, look away, or maybe the next day, or maybe half an hour later, see that person again, cannot recognize him or her, can't do it. She said growing up it was difficult because she had this inability, it's, it's diagnosable, it's a real thing, uh, face blindness, that would be a challenge. Now, when we get to heaven, are we going to all have initially prosopagnosia? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. In fact, uh, I'll read to you why. From John chapter 20, Jesus had died. What did he do after he died? He went to the grave. What did he do Sunday morning? He was raised from the dead, and then he went to heaven. But then he came back from heaven to the earth. And we read in John chapter 20 and verse 19. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, where the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. They recognized him. Now, he showed them his hands and his side, so that was further evidence 
But there's nothing here to suggest that they didn't recognize Jesus, meaning that when he came back from heaven, it looked a whole lot like he looked before he went to heaven. Now, we're going to get to heaven and be glorified, we'll be perfected. What do you think that will mean? Oh, probably that we're going to feel a whole lot better than we do now, might even look a little bit better than we do now, no more aches and pains, uh, going to be what we wished we could have right now. In that case, you'll probably have red hair. Well, if you're very blessed. So we'll be glorified and God will make us everything we ought to be, everything we would have been without the ravages of sin. That's for sure. Will we recognize people based on the little of the Bible that speaks to that? Sure seems like we will. Okay, another question for you. And this is a question from John. John writes, there is a Greek word in 2 Timothy 3, verse 4, meaning pleasure. I always felt it means more than partying, the deeper meaning that man enjoys what he does independent of God doing his own thing. Am I on the right track? I certainly hope you are. That Greek word is philedonos, and it simply means pleasure. This is where the Bible refers to people being lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Really, I think you're, you're on the right track. As I read that verse, I don't perceive there's any need to get too deep. The Bible spells it out. Here are people. This is this passage where the Bible lists about 19 or so different sins that'll be uh, that will be prevalent in the last days. And it describes people as being lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You think we're about there in the history of the world? I think we're getting there very close to it. When you see what's on television today, when you see what kind of entertainment people are involved in today, what brings joy and pleasure, or at least a perception of joy and pleasure to many people, uh, can't be far away. Yeah, we can fill a stadium with 80,000 fans watching college football, hard to fill a church with adequate people to give the impression that anyone really cares too much about God. I speak generally, but I think you know that generally I'm telling you the truth. Next question. We have a question here from Owen, and Owen asks this question. Did Jesus pay tithe, and why did he not teach about it? Good question. What do you think the answer is? We don't have any reference in the Bible directly to Jesus uh, taking his 10 denarii and separating one out and dropping it in the offering plate. So how do we answer this? No, we don't. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day attacked him for one thing and another, left and right. And one would expect that if he didn't return tithe, if he didn't pay tithe, they probably would have come down on him about that as well. And yet we don't see them attacking him on that. So there's an indication that he may well have. Jesus did teach on tithe. He recommended it very directly. Uh, I'm in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weighty matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. And then Jesus says this, These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You pay tithe and you ought to have done that. In fact, you return tithe and you should have. He was saying, you do this, but you don't do the others. Don't neglect that, but by all means, do this. As a Jew at that time, and tithing was standard practice for a Jewish believer, it's hard to imagine that Jesus would not have followed this very basic principle. Exactly. He, he gave us an example that we ought to follow. And so we've got a, a pretty clear example. Jesus says, you ought to do this. We can expect he's not going to tell us to do something that he himself did not do. Now, it's very interesting, I find. 
In the Bible, God says he promises, should you tithe, I will open for you the windows of heaven and pour you out such a blessing that you will not have room to receive it. I don't know why anybody would go looking for loopholes. I'm not saying Owen is, but many do trying to find a reason why they should not tithe. Why would you close your fist when God says, by this you will honor me, and through this I will honor you and bless you above your capacity to receive? For me, it's a no-brainer. Simplest thing in the world. God says, put me to the test, trust me, and you'll be blessed. Time rushes by at Line Upon Line, but I do want to tell you that if you'd like to get a question to us, email it to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. Org, line upon line at iiw.org, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 6, Chattanooga, Tennessee, 37401. And we'll do our best to give you a biblical answer for your Bible question. With Eric Flickinger, I'm John Bradshaw, back with more Line Upon Line in just a moment. My mom woke up at 11.45 and she smoked smoke about maybe 1.30 in the morning, the, uh, my wife got a phone call and I could hear the voice on the other end of the line and she was basically uh, screaming, there's a fire, it's massive, it's headed your way, you need to get out and get out now. After I hear fire, I hear in the background, the fire is two to four blocks away from your house and I panicked. We started praying, our prayers didn't last long. They were desperate, they were, they were rushed, there was a need, it was urgent, it was very, very urgent. I said, please save my children. Where was God when the fires burned? Where was God as people suffered? Where was God while people were dying? Where was God in the midst of the devastation? Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thursday, August the 5th, 2010 was not a happy day for 33 men. When a collapse in a mine in Chile buried them 2,300 feet below ground. No matter how much they tried to escape, there was no way out. Rescue would have to come from above. On the outskirts of the San Jose mine, over two and a half thousand people gathered. And with each failed rescue attempt, despair increased. Families gathered together to pray for a miracle. From the Atacama Desert comes a story of tragedy, a story of uncertainty, yet a story of courage, hope, and ultimately, a story of salvation. Wait on the Lord and the miracle will come. Trapped. Watch now on It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written with Eric Flickinger. I'm John Bradshaw at Line Upon Line. 
We answer your Bible questions. Thanks for getting them to us. We'll do our very best to give you an answer from the Word of God to the question that is rolling around in your mind. Okay, another question to begin this part of Line Upon Line. And here it is, Eric. All right. What is, this is from Roberta, what is the biblical evidence to support not wearing jewelry and makeup? All right, Roberta, you've got a, a few places that you can go in the Bible to find an answer to this question. The first place we're going to go is to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look together at verses 9 and 10. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 9. Paul says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to this question, it's, it's easier to pick on women than men, I, I suppose. But we see a principle here right off, a principle I think we can say without judgment or condemnation, but with all candor, modesty is about dead, isn't it? Just about. You don't yeah. see much of it today anymore at no, all. No, no. Really, modesty as a principle is something that's out the window. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? From a biblical point of view, from a spiritual point of view, one can hardly call it spiritually healthy that modesty is a thing of the past. Uh, as a society, we don't blush nearly as easily as we used to. Now, there's a lot of things that we used to consider in bad taste or we would turn away from, but today it hardly seems you can go down the street, look at a billboard, uh, look at a sign on the top of a taxi, watch TV commercials or programs that are on even in the middle of the day uh, and realize it's, we're a far cry from where we used to be. And here's what I think. I think a lot of people who practice immodesty, I'm just saying that very, you apply it however you want. I think in many cases, people don't even realize that at least from a biblical point of view, the practice might be inappropriate because we're about immune to it now. Yeah. Uh, things aren't covered up like they used to be. And I don't want to come off as old fashioned, but I would like to come off as biblical. Um, we can even be immodest in, in the way the things that we talk about and describe with the internet, that's like no holds barred anymore. So I think I, I just pause at this to point out that the Bible endorses modesty. And I think rightfully so. Anyhow, there was another verse you were getting to. Yeah, the other verse that we want to look at is 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Over in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter writes these words. He says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So he talks about two different types of adornment, an outward adornment and also an inward adornment. Yeah, Timothy did the same thing. I, I cut you off and I probably shouldn't have earlier. Timothy went on to say, um, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So it's right to be adorned with the character of God. But here we see in the Bible, God stating that it's his preference that people choose, and this would be women and men, choose not to adorn themselves outwardly. Boy, I wonder where that leaves people with tattoos who get them up their legs, down their arms, on their front, on their back, on their neck. Uh, that would be adornment. Mm. And between the two of us, it's hard to imagine how that could, in the vast majority of cases, honor God in any way, shape or form. 
Now, this is what the Bible says. We didn't manufacture this. Does it apply to today? How do we, how do we take these old-fashioned principles mm. and say these are still important today? How do we do that? Well, we've got a, a society today very much like a society back in the days of Jesus and, and even before where people are distracted by things. Men and women are distracted by the things that they see. They can be influenced by the people that they come in contact with. And if we begin to focus on the outward adornment rather than on, as the Bible talks about, the hidden man of the heart, we're looking at a, on a very surface uh, way at people rather than what's really going on inside. And, and that's what really counts is what's going on inside. Mm. It's easy to attach importance to things that aren't really that important. And even though it seems the train has left the station, the Bible hasn't changed from the time it was written to the time of now. So I would encourage you to pray to God and say, does this really apply to me today? And if it does, what God would you like me to do about it? Because as followers of Jesus, we want to stand as close to where Jesus stands as we can. Not just because we want to follow a rule or conform to what the pack is doing, but because we want to honor God because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. Thank you for your question. Next question comes from Glenn. Glenn who writes, who was Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews? Same Melchizedek as in the book of Genesis. So who was he, Eric? Melchizedek kind of showed up on the scene. He received tithe and then he kind of disappeared from the program. Uh, The name Melchizedek kind of helps us a little bit in understanding who he was. Uh, His name Melchizedek means my king is righteous or the king of righteousness. And as you look at him and his appearance and disappearance, there are some similarities to uh, to someone else that we're familiar with in the Bible, but we don't have a whole lot of history about where he came from and don't know a whole lot about where he went to either. He's described as the king of Salem. We know that. Was he the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say that. Was it Jesus? No, there's nothing to indicate that it was Jesus. The maddening thing about Melchizedek is we just don't have a whole lot of information. We would like to be able to say, here is the evidence that Melchizedek was this guy. We just don't have it. So he was there, he was not. We'll find out one day. But Glenn, thanks very much for your question. Next question. Next question that we have is from Elizabeth. And Elizabeth wants to know the answer to the question, is Judas in hell? It's an excellent question. Tell you what, if anybody deserved to go to hell, it'd be Judas, no question about it. So let's find out where Judas is. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Sure, if anyone was gonna go, it was that guy. So I'm gonna read in Matthew chapter 26, where Judas does the dastardly deed. Matthew chapter 26, and I shall read in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Judas betrayed Jesus into the hands of the authorities and hastened Jesus' death on the cross. That is, he gave Jesus no opportunity to escape. He, he sold him out. Now, now, look at this. In chapter 27 and verse 3, it says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful 
and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. If you were to construct the Mount Rushmore of those who have covered themselves with shame in the Bible, Judas's face would be carved on the Mount Rushmore of shame. So if anyone was going to go to hell, it'd be Judas, no question. But that's not what the question was. The question was, is he in hell? Take it from here. To answer that question, we've got to ask the question, what does hell look like? When does hell burn? And is it burning today? And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. Jesus. Uh, He spoke on that on a number of occasions. And there's a powerful parable found in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Now, we're not going to read the entire parable here. uh, But if you look at Matthew 13, starting in verse number 24, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a good man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Then the question is, uh, should the tares be rooted up immediately? Should they be allowed to grow with the rest of the, of the crop? Uh, what happens to them? Then Jesus goes and he interprets this entire parable. Uh, we take a look at verse number 37, and Jesus explains what the parable is all about. In verse 37, it says, He answered the disciples and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. That would be the righteous. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So here Jesus tells us exactly what the different parts of the parable represent. And when hellfire burns. Verse 40 says, Therefore as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age or the end of the world, as other versions say it. Is Judas in hell right now? I don't think we're at the end of the world. Is anyone in hell right now? Don't think we're at the end of the world. Not a soul, not a one. And that's the answer to the question. That isn't to say Judas will not end up in hell. I find it beyond my ability to imagine that he would be in heaven. If he made his peace with God, more power to him, God be praised. I just don't think he did. So Judas, who we would assume died a lost man, isn't in hell right now. Will he be? I'd rather not pass judgment on him, but but should he be, it will take place in the end of the world. We haven't got there yet. Good question, good answer. Thank you for that. And here's one last question. It is from Victor, and Victor's question is, is it true that the Bible has secret codes that various agencies found out. Well, we don't have a lot of time for this question, Victor, but thankfully, we don't need a lot of time. The answer is no. Need I add more? Pretty straightforward. The answer, no, not at all. Now, there are some prophecies that need to be interpreted, but that's not what you're asking. Bible codes, secret codes, authorities, nah. No such thing. Don't worry about it even a bit. Thank you for your questions today. That's all we have time for. But there's still tons of time for you to get your questions to us. Email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org. Or write 
P.O. Box 6, Chattanooga, Tennessee, 37401. We welcome your questions. That's all we have time for with Eric Flickinger. I'm John Bradshaw for It Is Written. Thanks for joining us today on Line Upon Line.